Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 59, John 3 in a Storm of Swords featuring Vanessa Cole from the Knights Cast. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Liza Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and LizaNarborGold.com, my blog. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl over on Reddit or on the Maester Monthly podcast. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Hi, guys. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, thanks for coming. We're really excited that you're here. If you haven't checked Vanessa out, you can find a lot of her work on WatchersOnTheWall.com, where she is a writer. She has some wonderful pieces. She's written some really good stuff. One of my favorites is your Dragon and the Wolf stuff with Liana and Rhaegar. Thanks. Awesome. I'm glad you read that one. I'm a fan. I worked really hard on it, so (laughs) (laughs) thanks. Yes, and you can also find her at the Night's Cast. Yes, we actually just finished a live podcast recording at Con of Thrones over this past weekend. So we should have the audio out for that uh, within the next week or so, and we're recording another episode this weekend to talk a little bit more about all the news that's coming out about the Game of Thrones prequel, about the Long Night, and the Children of the Forest, White Walkers, Age of Heroes type thing. Tentatively called Blood Moon for now, but we're getting some really good information on that. Um, They're filming the pilot now in Italy at the moment, so Mm -hmm. it's uh, really exciting. So we're, we're going to have fun talking about that this weekend. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Prequel, I haven't been keeping up just because I am a strange person who likes to come into the things like, <laughs> just like pure, not unsullied. Yeah, very unsullied. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I want to be surprised by all the things. And also, I secretly still think that they should have just gone all in and named it basically periods. But whatever. I mean, reverse is kind of fine, too. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I think it could be cool. I didn't think I was going to be excited for it until like two days ago so so I'm a believer I guess now I saw some behind the scenes production-y spoiler photos on the internet can't say that in front of Eliana though so we'll move on (laughs) god Yes. So this has been a long time coming. We were really excited to have Vanessa on. And as we've discussed before. Wait, 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 has... wait, wait. Did you just say? Oh, a... my God. Did you just say <laughs> a long time coming? Because you know what episode this is, Eliana, right? This is episode. <laughs> God damn it. I just want to make sure. 59. And it's only 59 yeah. because only one of them goes down on the other. That's that's just how the episode <laughs> in the chapter works. Sorry, if everyone. If only we had had 10 more Blackwater episodes, this could have been episode 69. Nice. I'm sorry, so but did actually, not. Actually, uh, Ygritte actually sounds like she does reciprocate at the end. It's, it's fake, but like, <laughs> you can kind of glean that mm. from it. So, you know... I'm so glad we brought master <laughs> analyst Vanessa Cole on for the sex episode. Yes. For all this sex position. Yes. <laughs> and I'll be talking about all of the sexual imagery that George throws in there too. So. Oh, good. Yeah, I actually saw that you mentioned some of it. You thought we were going to get out unscathed. No nipple talk, Eliana, but here we are. I kind of forgot about it because like, I was just like breezing through and then forgot to come back double back for it i'm glad that i have both of you here to do that each of you can be a nipple uh, (laughs) on this on tonight's cast thank you for joining us vanessa um you're welcome let's talk about some emails and tweets of note 
Hey, we got a really good, it was a review, I think, on iTunes. Correct me if I'm wrong, Eliana. Was it a review? This was in Podbean on the sidebar, and it looked like uh, someone else was replying to it. It looked like it was nested, but I don't know if it was. I don't know where it comes from. I had to go into the HTML to grab it. I went, Mm. inspected the element, and pulled it out of the HTML. Interesting. Okay, I was wondering about this uh, foreign language you spoke it in. There's just zeros and ones all over it. Uh, There's not. There's like literally one weird symbol. But yeah, so someone sent us in a comment, it seems, from Podbean, uh, at Coley, I believe it is, C-O-A-L-I-E. We're not sure. Is that Podbean, Twitter? No one knows. But Where are you from? Who are you, Coley? We appreciate you. Uh, Never realized I want GRRM to drop a Torment Tall Tales book. Say that ten times fast. Narrated by Eliana until this episode. Har! Yes, thank you. I definitely blew out the audio there for a bit. Yeah, you did. And had to, like, make it smaller, but thank you. And then also we got a couple of other tweets and stuff, and some of them will... And we also got a couple of other tweets and comments, and some of them will bring up throughout the episode as they arise. But this one was kind of uncouth because it wasn't directed at us, but it was a tweet that I thought was of note because I thought it was really interesting. It's quoting an essay that's about Theon Greyjoy from a few years ago, like in 2012, I think, uh, in a collection of essays. And just did a great job articulating some of the ideas that really interested us about Theon's storyline when we were covering it many, many moons ago uh, during that character read-through. And it, the person who quoted this, or the account that quoted it, is called Best of Theon at A-S-O-I-A-F Theons, plural Theons, T-H-E-O-N-S. Like an addict, Greyjoy uses sex not so much as a source of pleasure, but to assuage a compulsion. Sex also appears to be a way for Theon to grasp some shred of personal power when, as a hostage, so much has been stripped from him. This is from Mike Cole's essay, Art Imitates War, and we will actually link that essay. Yes, and I think this was so interesting because we had discussed before and part of the reason why we chose to do this order of John's chapters following Theon's is because the two characters are such a great contrast to each other as these outsiders in Winterfell, as people who long to be Starks but are not quite. So it's interesting to see the relationship that Theon and John have with sex and how that differs, because as Mike Cole says, for Theon, it's personal power and a way for him to claim it, even though he's a hostage at Winterfell, as we discussed often throughout Theon's chapters. Whereas for John, it seems that He, of course, sees sex as shameful because of the way that he was brought up in Winterfell, and rejecting it is very much how he seems to try and create a sense of control and power in his own life. Yeah, Dion really has that whole sense of power and control from sex for him. That is his identity because that's all he has for him to make it as identity. So it's interesting to see how Jon rejects that and what sex does to him in his arc and what it instills in him. I also think, you know, a big reason John rejects sex is because, you know, growing up as a bastard, he thinks so often that he doesn't want to father one of his own. And anytime he loses control and, and engages in a sexual act with someone, there's the chance that he could create another life that would go through what he went through growing up. And he just adamantly does not want to do that. So 
um, like you said, it's, I think it is really about control and controlling the outcome of, you know, having another life like his. I think every time he experiences something sexual too, it seems to so far some sort of like romantic inclination in the books, especially here, he like loses that control, right? Like that he, he gets lost on his path, which we see a lot of these Starks as we've been talking about, get lost on their path as they go through these books before they come back home and find Winterfell again. And John, especially, there's this line in The Manimals Have a Song. I've talked about it before on the podcast very briefly, albeit, uh, but it's called Lone, and it's from their Game of Thrones concept album, Seven, and the song has this line about John and Egret and how, you know, I, now I've got your scent, how will I ever get home again? And that's what happens with Egret. John stays longer with the wildlings because of Egret. In the end, we know that's what it was. Yeah thought that was really great and a perfect way to set us up for this chapter of John in the caves. <laughs> but before we get there, let's talk about our lightning round. Before we get where, Eliana? There. Has it been coming for a long time? Anyways. Before, before we get to episode, before we get to 59ing. <laughs> Someday we'll hit 69ing, I guess. Uh, Someday. Nice. Uh, blaze it. So, lightning round, Sansa 2. Sansa is fit for a gown, but Dantos later reminds her her claim is all that she is worth. Arya 3. Arya loses part of her pack as Hot Pie takes a job offer. And she reunites with Harwin, who rides with the Brotherhood. She later tries to escape, but Harwin brings her back to eventually face Beric Dondarrion. Samwell 1. The survivors of the zombie attack on the Fist make their way south, but Sam collapses exhausted. Small Paul carries Sam, but it slows their group down and a hero must rise to protect them from the whites. Straight up top three ass-off chapters ever. Ass-off. Tyrion 3. A bunch of political stuff happens. We don't have time. This is a reread. So people live places, and they want to own other places, and they're greedy. So Tyrion marries Sansa, and he has to, and everyone's like, it's so sad. You're marrying the prettiest eligible prisoner of war there is, and child bride there is. Shut up, asshole. So yeah, that's Tyrion 3 in a nutshell. Which brings us to Catelyn 3. Rob must put an end to Karstark unrest in his camp, and Jane Westerling asks Catelyn advice on how to be a good wife to Rob. Jamie 3. Pining for his twin sister, Jamie rides along until he, Brienne, and the soon-to-be-dead Cleos <laughs> are attacked by archers. Taken captive by the brave companions after a sparring performance, Jamie barters with his father's gold, but pays with his hand. I thought that was a good one. Uh, just, just, you know, not to wax poetic here. I'm just saying, I, I thought I'd be good on that one. That was art. Arya 4. Traveling with the Brotherhood, Arya meets the ghost of High Heart. Not as artful. Daenerys 2. After meeting the Unsullied, Daenerys is conflicted at liberating the men for her own army. Brand 2. After dining on the generosity of a little of the hills... Mira and Jojen tell Bran an old story of a knight in shining armor and her prince. It's canon, bitch. <laughs> Thank you, Vanessa. <laughs> Vanessa is an official girl god. All your deny, all you deniers out there, just give up. This might be like my favorite. Honestly, this might be my favorite lightning round I've ever written because it's my favorite chapter. Probably this and Sansa Seven and Storm of Swords are probably my two favorite chapters. So, but we just talked about Sam One. <laughs> That's up there, but these are my top two. Brand two is in my top two, is what I'm telling you. I don't know if it's one or two, but it's my favorite. Okay. It's just magical. It's a magical chapter. Shut up, Eliana. 
This leads us to Davos 3, where Davos finds himself jailed with the hand of the king after a visit to his cell from the Red Woman. And finally, that brings us over to John 3, forced to further assimilate where he does not belong. John makes good on his debt to Egret deep within a cave. Or two. Uh, of wonders. Oh my god. <laughs> he could show you the world. Uh, John Whoa. climbs beneath the stars while looking for ghosts. And we get this beautiful meta line on the series and the fandom and all of the meta theorizing that goes along, right? We look up at the same stars and see such different things. It also reminds me of somewhere out there, the classic <coughs> song from an American tale about an immigrant mouse, Fievel Mousekowitz. That's my input. <laughs> Thank you, Eliana. <laughs> One of my favorite movies as a kid. It, same, same. That song slaps. So good. Her. So good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I really love this line, and it really kind of makes me think of Jamie's line. I think it's in his next chapter, um, because it's after he loses his hand where he's looking at the stars and thinking, how can such a night be beautiful? Why would the stars want to look down on such as me? And, you know, they're really kind of in a place where they're both torn between love and duty and trying to figure out who they really are, especially now that Jamie has lost a part of himself. And John, too, because, you know, Jamie's lost his sword hand, and that's, you know, he always thought of himself as a warrior. And John is thinking to himself that he's lost the night's watch because he feels like a traitor. And so they're really struggling with, the difficulty of keeping their honor in these situations. And then, you know, they've got these conflicting oaths that they're trying to keep. So I, I just really liked that line kind of ties these two together. I love that George kind of captures that hypocrisy of life, right? I mean, everyone can relate to this in your everyday life struggles, whether it's like putting your shoes on in the dark. I don't know. Everyone can relate. It's relatable. Relatable content, George. Thank you. Uh, John thinks on everything Maester Lewin has taught him of the stars and the 12 houses of heaven and all of their rulers. Yeah, and I'm, I really like as he's kind of going through the names of the, the constellations or the stars in his head, um, how he thinks he's old friends with some of them. And I was wondering if maybe this is like possibly foreshadowing the three heads of the dragon and perhaps their role in fighting the others later on because, you know, he's, he talks about the ice dragon who I've always considered to be John because, you know, kind of self-explanatory he's ice he's dragon ice dragon <laughs> and then he he thinks about the shadow cat which um i'm wondering if that might reference Tyrion because you know Tyrion is a lion mm. and there are so many quotes about Tyrion that reference shadows so you know a small man can cast a large shadow and makaro says he's a small man with a big shadow snarling in the midst of all um and then you know in the early on in game of uh, game of thrones we have the line that his shadow stood as tall as a king so um, I thought maybe that was a reference to him. And of course, we have the Moon Maid, which brings Danny to mind because all of the moon imagery that surrounds her. Mm. Um, she's the moon of, of Caldrogo's life. Um, so I thought that was kind of an apt comparison for her. And then he also thinks of the Sword of the Morning, so Dawn Lightbringer. Um, so I think it's interesting that he's beyond the wall and thinking about these stars that might be symbolizing things that are going to be happening in the future beyond the wall perhaps yeah i thought that was really interesting and i couldn't like really piece together you know what 
these constellations might mean, but I like the interpretation of them being the three heads of the dragon. I was trying to make it fit because like I was thinking maybe the shadow cat is Arya. But I think what's interesting about John is he fits into all of these different groups, yet he goes between so many different social groups and his struggle is constantly feeling as though he doesn't belong. But I think I think the way that you did the shadow cat is really good because as you said, Tyrion's the cat in blind, but they constantly ca- describe Tyrion throughout a lot of the chapters and in prophecies, like some of Quaithe's or or some of the visions that I, I want to say it was the ones that Danny sees mm-hmm. as like a small white lion in the grass, and like I mean, a cat's just basically a small lion. Do yeah. not say that loud enough for my cats to hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, gonna, we're gonna be like everything the light touches is ours. They already do that. Yeah, cats, bitch. Of course, cats, cats think that already. So oh yeah. My God. <laughs> Yeah, I like this a lot better with Tyrion as the shadow cat. The shadow part of it really fits there well. Uh, it reminds me a lot, in a way, t- of all of the Mance stuff going on with Mance as the shadow cat and the shadow cat story from Corrin. So I like that they're just keeping that shadow cat in as it's showing like it is a part of their everyday life and it's also a part of their lore and culture as well. Uh, they have all sorts of different names for them. Like the Red Wanderer is one of them I liked and that's kind of akin to the Smith. They say, so I'm guessing most of these are supposed to be, like, akin to the Maiden. Or, of course, you have, like, the Moon Pale Maiden, for example, in the East. Uh, so maybe that's a reference, to. And I also thought maybe even with that Three Heads of the Dragon idea, John and his sisters as well, and thinking of, like, Arya and Sansa and the roles the Starks might play, and even with Bran as Lightbringer in a way, um, the show didn't paint him in a detailed light of whatever the hell he's going to do in his brain with his mental, magical wizard powers. But I'm hoping, as we read the story, things might happen, right? Like, there might be there might be a little more magic than what we got to see on the TV show. So maybe he'll do something light-bringing. Yeah, I, I'm willing to bet good money. <laughs> There'll be a lot more magic in the books. You think? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Just, I don't just know. Maybe attack. that's just... <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was cool. I didn't think about that till like, you said Shadowcat. And I was like, hmm, what if also? There's just, like, all these different... I like that George has these patterns of three and four and different things that fit these characters. So when the thief is in the Moon Maid, because the thief is a different constellation that is akin to, I guess, the smith, which is really interesting, um, Egret says that's actually the best opportunity to steal a woman, like the knight that John stole her. I mean, does that mean that Gendry's going to steal Arya, <laughs> the smith? Oh, the yes. I don't know. I don't know. I think that's uh, foreshadowing. <laughs> or I kind of see it as like, I mean, Arya's a roguelike character. Let's throw this out there. Arya steals Gendry. <laughs> mm. Oh, like Brave Danny Flint? Oh. It could be. It could be. But also, John's like, I didn't steal you. <laughs> like, that's not what happened. I didn't even know that you were a she until I was as right about to kill you. Yeah, he literally uses the language knife was at her throat and Egret's like, if you kill a man whether you mean to or not, you killed him. And I'm like, A, major guilt about Corrin half-hand right now. Right? Like, John's like sitting there like, thanks. Thanks for reminding me. But also, is this foreshadowing? I don't know. It could all be foreshadowing at this point. I think... There's what you said about him and Corrin that I also see it as tying into a little of what happens between him and Egret at 
like yeah. the end of this book because he sees the arrows and knows that it can't possibly his, but he feels that he killed her even though he didn't really and there's he didn't really mean to. And it kind of reminds me and ties John's story a little to Blood Ravens during the Blackfire Rebellion. He led the attack, the archers against the Blackfire troops ending up killing Damon Blackfire's sons and Damon Blackfire, and for that, people called Bloodraven a kinslayer, even though technically, did he really kill him? Did he not? But that's something that people interpret as being Bloodraven's fault. We had a comment from Miss Mama on Podbean, actually, and she said something that really blew my mind. I didn't think about it. She left this comment saying maybe Mance in the last episode with that ridiculous helm, he got that from the Raven's Teeth men at the wall. And I thought that was an interesting comment. I just never thought about where he would have gotten this ridiculous helm with the wings on it. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I never thought about it. I never thought about it. And you get all those echoes of, you know, Mance's Rhaegar, as one of our friends, Ink Tentacles, on the internet tends to uh, tweet at us in our last couple of episodes. Obviously, he's Rhaegar, but... Yeah, and I was also thinking, you know, you, you tied it to what happens with Egret, and I'm wondering if maybe it has some kind of reference to what may happen with him and Daenerys as well. I mean, we know how it played out in that show that's based on these books, but, um, <laughs> but I feel like... I'm sorry, did you mean the show that the books are based on? No, I'm joking. No, Wait a no. second. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, but um, but we, we we saw well. If you watched the show, you saw how it played out there, and I feel like the circumstances will be a little different just because of all of the cut characters and storylines that we didn't get to see. So I'm I'm just wondering if maybe instead of it being a more deliberate act, if there's going to be some kind of not necessarily accidental, but maybe something where it's even more conflicting for John, like with Egret, where you know he he feels like he isn't necessarily to blame, but he feels guilty anyway. Um, and I think that mm-hmm. would really you know if he ends up where he does in the show, where he goes beyond the wall and kind of leaves society because of you know everything that he's gone through. I think that that would probably kind of spur that along as well so who knows yeah it's providing a lot of background for that whatever comes of this whole entire plot it's providing a really good foundation for it to build off of and there's a lot of language i'm seeing in this goddamn book in storm of swords and even some stuff from dance that i'm reading ahead to think on that i'm just like oh yep okay i see it thanks george it's looking me in the face now thanks for that one uh, it's interesting, though, because all that stuff only pops out in your mind after you've seen it, you know, and then it's, it's just like when you see a car, right? When you're like, my girlfriend drives this car. It's a Ford, blah, blah, blah. And you've never seen this car in your life. And then the next day you see it everywhere, right? Like, that's all it is. It's nuts. It's hard to reread these books now. I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that this is foreshadowing Danny as well, because I think you see a lot of repetition of all of these different ideas and characters not just John, that builds up to their later storyline. So I definitely think this is speaking to that as well. And so there's this really great quote where John thinks, John had never met anyone so stubborn, except maybe for his little sister, Arya. Is she still my sister? He wondered. Was she ever? He had never truly been a Stark, only Lord Eddard's motherless bastard with no more place at Winterfell than Theon Greyjoy. 
and even that he'd lost. When a man of the Night's Watch said his words, he put aside his old family and joined a new one, but John Snow had lost those brothers too. He's a Stark at heart, man. I get it. Subtext. He is. Rereading this quote now and thinking about that, about Theon again, it's kind of, again, the same as what Theon did. He put aside the Stark family, even though, yes, he was a hostage and tried to rejoin the Greyjoys, and in doing so has lost that family. He lost his quote-unquote brothers because he quote-unquote killed them, <laughs> but didn't. <laughs> John then finds Ghost at the top of the hill, and he jokes with Ghost, asking if Ghost had other words for the stars and gods too, which is adorable. And <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting that Ghost likes heights, which I don't know if this is like speaking to... John and heights and dragons or if it means John should bring ghosts on a dragon ride because dogs like sticking their heads out car windows and maybe this is the same energy these are just ideas oh, yeah I don't know how ghosts would hang on <laughs> would he have to like these are questions bite on a spine with his mouth I don't know his claws <laughs> Tyrion Tyrion will design the a saddle, saddle for doggy for saddle. ghosts oh, yes. amazing. oh man <laughs> Does that redeem him for it? No, it doesn't. Almost, almost. <laughs> oh god. Um, I also like how John thinks about how the bird marked both of them, and I remember you guys saying in your last episode, um, kind of comparing the bird to like Blood Raven and how it brings like Blood Raven to mind. Um, and so it kind of made me think about how Blood Raven kind of marked both of them as well, mm. because you know, Ghost obviously he looks like a weirwood. He's an albino. Bloodraven and albino, mm. Ghost is white with red eyes. Bloodraven Sigil was a white dragon with red eyes. Um, so it's like Bloodraven chose Ghost specifically for John, and I think John was also kind of another chosen one of Bloodraven, so perhaps he saw the uh, important role that he would be playing in the War for the Dawn, and that's why he sent him this animal. Um, kind of the way he chose Bran as well, because they have similar but different roles to play. So, uh, I just thought that was an interesting quote. It's really crazy when you think that because you're like Blood Raven sitting with Bran right now, and Bran's just like sitting there, and Blood Raven's guiding his arm, going reach out across the weirwoods. Oh, your bastard brother John, open his eye. That's what's happening. Like his siblings are his trading right now. Ooh. <laughs> oh, ew. Isn't that yeah. weird though? Like think about it. Like it's just like this weird tree dude holding Bran, cradling him, going, "Yes, reach out and touch <laughs> them." Weird, creepy kid. Reach out and touch them. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I think this reminds me of two things that you were saying. So I think today, which is Tuesday, I don't know, this this time in July, right, uh, a new version of, I forgot which, some Game of Thrones thing came out, and there's an illustration of the dead direwolf with a raven atop it. And it's a really beautiful illustration, and people are taking this to be a sign that, or a confirmation that Bloodraven did indeed send the direwolf to the to the Stark children. But it also makes me think this idea of marking them, and this is like really out there. It reminds me of in the Bible after Cain kills his brother Abel, and so his relative, right, killing one's own blood, their relative. God marks Cain so that no one will harm him, but Cain then is sent off into exile. And I don't know if this is something oh. George is playing with. Yeah, and he's marked by his brother. 
He's marked by God, by God for the yeah. sin of killing his brother and has to wander. It's interesting you say that because it's like they also talk about how wargs are basically the mark of the beast. Like, straight oh. up the mark of the beast. You know what I mean? It, it, yeah. So it's kind of like a very on-the-head reference. Uh, and that is from uh, the folio edition of A Game of Thrones that was released, where those pictures are. We'll have to post mm. some of them on our Twitter, at Girls Gone Canon. They're really cool. Someone on Reddit posted a link with a handful of pictures, and there's one of Sansa in Sansa 2 in A Game of Thrones at the tourney. Uh, there's Daenerys when she's eating the horse heart, and there is the crow, the raven, the three-eyed, whatever the fuck you want to call him, the burb, sitting on the direwolf and the antlers in it, so... Interesting. I do think it's confirmation. I mean, I think it's like a, yes, we know. So John tells ghosts they have to part again tomorrow, that he cannot climb the wall with them. That would be a silly sight to see. Uh, he tells ghosts to head back to Castle Black and that they will know him when he arrives. Duh. He had no quills to send a message with. As it was, he thought about it, but it was just too risky. Yeah, I just think it's hilarious that he's like, I'm really hoping my dog understands what I'm saying. It kind of reminds me of a couple of animal things. A, Appa's last day, lost days in Avatar The Last Airbender. Also, Homeward Bound, because I saw a sad picture of Shadow in the mud recently, and that has been top of mind for me lately. Um, I, I can't watch that movie without crying. Yeah, no. <laughs> animal movies. I agree. <laughs> Yeah, it, it also reminds me of Nemeria. Oh, with Arya. Hmm. Yeah, it just um, it just makes me think of the Lone Wolf dies, but the pack survives. And we, I mean, we know they don't die now, but mm-hmm. any time that they're parted from their wolves, it makes me nervous. <laughs> Bad things happen. Not good. Yeah, and I guess it's also symbolically right now that I think about it, because whatever in this chapter, as John wavers regarding his vows and he's like who am i i'm unsure so it's kind of apt that he sends ghost away during that part whereas before he kept ghost in between him and egret as he stood fast by his vows the sword between them was ghost and now ghost is gone and then well we see what happens after the knight removes his sword from the bed later on oh nicely done george (laughs) that's where that went that's literally where that went that was the whole thing that Ghost was the sword between them and then Ghost pieced out. Okay. Interesting. So Ghost does piece off, though. He, he's like, trot, trot, trot. He gets out of there. And John surveys the ground around them. It's uneven and trees are everywhere. And it's lucky for them. It conceals those on the way to the wall, but it makes them more slow moving. John feels hopeless and helpless. And he feels like he should have done more. He should have done everything, he thinks, to try and kill Mance in that moment. That core and half hand would have but then he tells himself no i'm just biding my time though day by day he rides with steer and the suspicious jarl and egret is also never far off i think it's a little funny that he he thinks that corin would have killed mance because that's basically committing suicide and i mean yes mance brought all these people together but do you think they're just gonna give up if he dies not so i think it's a little short-sighted for him to think that yeah also corin loved mance like that's literally what we gleaned from the last two chapters like yeah if he went out trying to kill mance he'd go out but like corin was straight up just like i had a brother once i loved him anyway moving on (laughs) you know like that's it 
Yeah, it's not very strategic, like you're saying, <laughs> Vanessa. Like, maybe it would have worked, but also just like, I mean, there's a lot of people, right? Stir would take over. It's a dumb, it's just not a very smart I move. I mean, he is a teenage boy. What do you expect? I know. <laughs> oh, John, our teenage child. Our maid. He's no longer a maid. Two hearts that beat as one. Mance Raider's mocking words rang bitter in his head. John had seldom felt so confused. Okay, sure. What? You're like always confused. <laughs> and damned. I have no choice, he'd told himself the first time, when she slipped beneath his sleeping skins. If I refuse her, she will know me for a turncloak. I'm playing the part the half-hand told me to play. But oh, his body is sure playing the part well enough, he thinks. You know, like with his dick. Yes. That is a thing, Chloe. I, I think this is hilarious. It's like, like, well, like we said, teenage boy. It's like, um, I'm trying to justify why I'm doing this, but <laughs> I mean, I gotta give myself a good reason for it. But you know, he he probably doesn't feel that bad about it. <laughs> At least like during, <laughs> you know. I just think it's hilarious that he's like, oh, but, but there's a good reason. <laughs> Yeah, at the very end, he's like, oh no, why did I do that? It was the worst thing I've ever done. It's horrible. Sure Ow. it was. Sure it was. <laughs> I love how, um, I don't know when it is, and at some point in a few lines, yes. John's like, I'm never going to do it again. And then the line switches to, they did it two more times <laughs> that night. <laughs> yeah, it's my it's favorite. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I see you, George. <laughs> I like how um, also Egret constantly repeats to John, of course, you know nothing, Jon Snow, but I can show you. And that comes up a couple times throughout this chapter. And it's kind of fun because nothing is a double entendre. In Shakespeare's time, nothing was a pun on this term un, so A-N, the article in terms of grammar, un-o-thing which is basically a euphemism for vagina. <laughs> and so this is a chapter in which John really gets to know nothing. Oh. 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 Thing. Yeah, I get it. Yes. <laughs> That's it. That was... Thank you for the sex position. That's what I... Well, I mean, it, I think it's definitely something George is playing with. That's why Egret's always like, you know nothing. And then the Lord... Well, we're not there yet. <laughs> you watch your tongue. So much ado no! about, about nothing is much ado about vaginas. Yes. It's something that he's definitely playing with. Like, um, a comedy of errors is largely about syphilis. That's true. That's not a joke. Well, I mean, it's a joke, but it's true. No, it is true. I'm and what's interesting learning then, you so think much. Of, like, What's, uh, you know, you got Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick, with all the, like, crazy shit going on in that movie, and, like, cults and shit, like, what if Shakespeare was just trying to expose all of the the damned of his time through his plays, and then it just got regarded as art? Sorry, Bill. So sorry. Or maybe just people liked dick jokes, but <laughs> vagina jokes instead? I mean... And STDs. Everyone had them. Sex and the free folk? City? Is Egret Miranda? I don't... I need to watch Sex in the City. What? I'm sorry, everyone. I know, I know. There's so many things that, like, I haven't seen that disappoint Chloe. Oh Isn't she more Samantha? Is that Kim Cattrall? Yeah, I think I think she's more Samantha, actually. You're right, you're right. A little wild. 
Eliana, you're gonna have to watch him weigh yeah. in. Oh, I'm glad that we brought Vanessa on, because I'm like, at least someone can respond to Chloe's assertion regarding Sex in the City. No, it's fine. I think she has it better, too. So, John, who does not watch Sex in the City, John recalls the Weirwood Grove, where he took his vows while he remembers tasting Egret's flesh for the first time. And I thought this was an interesting passage, just even standalone, but a pot. He tried to remind himself afterward. I am playing a part. I had to do it once to prove I'd abandoned my vows. I had to make her trust me. Yeah, this is what did it. It never need happen again. He was still a man of the Night's Watch and a son of Eddard Stark. He had done what needed to be done, proved what needed to be proven. Who are you proving it to, buddy? (laughs) It's proving he can go more than once in one night. (laughs) (sighs) Interesting. Puberty. Mm -hmm. Um... Regarding John saying a part, he tried to remind himself, I am playing a part. I'm going to come back to Shakespeare once more, where, of course, in As You Like It, a character Jacques makes a famous speech. You have all probably heard the line, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. I'm not going to read the entire thing because it's multiple lines, but talks about how it, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. I thought that was interesting that was seven. I, it's not really exact for John because, you know, he's never been truly a schoolboy, throwing that out there. But John, of course, as we see, plays many different parts. We see that actually in many of the characters across A Song of Ice and Fire, as we talk about in our episode about identity over on Patreon, and also as we see as the books progress, right? The names of characters change to take on different roles yeah it reminds me a lot of that speech that peter gives sans elaine to when he says you know like every pawn has a move even if they don't know what to do like you can make that move for them that's what that reminds me of all the world's a stage mm. in the game of thrones you win or die chess <laughs> themes then... the- what themes <laughs> Themes are for 8th grade book reports, guys. Oh, God. Uh, so well, mad. This is a weekly 8th grade book report, so subscribe, <laughs> bitches. <laughs> Puberty. Being uh, 16. So, John vows to himself it would never happen again. We get this line that even Eddard had stumbled in his faith to Catelyn. You know, him ever thinking of Lord Eddard, his lord father. He thinks, though... As Vanessa was saying, the proving had been so sweet. And then it happened twice more that (laughs) night and once in the morning. Oh, to be a teenager again. (laughs) I know. I'm like, hmm. One and done, bitch. I'm asleep. (laughs) Yep. That's it. Good for you. Good night. You you got it, kid. Good Uh, night. (laughs) It falls off if you don't, I hear. So. Yep, that is what I hear. That is what Tormund said last time. It just goes right back into you. So I guess good thing John's won't. Also, someone else pointed this out before on Reddit. I don't remember who anymore. But they did an analysis on the rose in the chink of Mm. ice in the wall smelling sweet. And talked about how this concept of sweetness in the Song of Ice and Fire is very much tied to ideas of death like for example they described like tywin's body as smelling like sickly sweet like this weird terrible sweet odor and you see it also in how people say oh sweet sister with so much sarcasm so 
And I was, it also kind of made me think, um, I know you guys were comparing um, Egret and John to Leanna and Rhaegar. And it made me think of Leanna's quote to Ned, where she says, Love is sweet, dearest Ned, but it can't change a man's, a man's nature. Talking about Robert. But it also made me think about John and how he's so tied to duty and he's so honor bound that while this is like a nice diversion for him and he's really wrapped up in this moment with Egret and I think he does love her but it's kind of fleeting for him and no matter how good things are he's always got this in the back of his head that he has to go back to the watch he has to fulfill his duty he has to keep his oath and even though I think his story will change somewhat when he is resurrected in the books I think he will be a somewhat different person I think I think is ultimately his story will come back to this where no matter what, you know, it's not going to change his nature, no matter what kind of relationships he enters into, he's still going to be tied to that, that duty and that honor. And I think it's always going to be part of a story. It's interesting you say that because it makes me think of Liana a lot as well, that he is his mother's son. He spends this whole entire series saying, you know, like, I don't know my mother. She's probably, you know, just some common sex worker that my dad bedded you know and he's so ashamed of it he won't even talk about her but then he dreams about her you know he dreams of her being highborn and kind and there's a lot of that in there there's a lot of him with that nature that stark nature that liana nature liana stood up for what was right right like howland reed was beat up by all these squires and assholes and liana stood there and was like how dare you that is my dad's man you're hitting like get away from him John, in the end, really is this amalgamation of, like, his mother and his father. Yeah, absolutely. And then we have everyone hearing them. I mean, I jo- John's gone from zero to a hundred real quick, all right? He's gone from being a virgin to having public sex. And so everyone hears them, and they're watching, and Jarl's like, yo, be quick about it. And then throws a pail of ice water over them? That's yeah. just rude. It's very rude. John's like, like dogs, like, wow, that's, you're treating us like dogs. And there's this passage, this thought that he has, and it really ties into what we were just talking about, that love is sweet, dearest Ned line, that Liana line, the whole concept of sweetness. I am a man of the night's watch, a small voice inside insisted, but every night it seemed a little fainter, and when Egret kissed his ears or bit his neck, he could not hear it at all. Was this how it was for my father? He wondered. Was he as weak as I am when he dishonored himself in my mother's bed? I think these lines are so interesting because any time that John thinks about his father or his lord father or what his father would have done or what his mother was, while it's all about Ned and his honor and legacy and what he's brought these kids up on, at the same time it almost always mirrors an exact... Rhaegar and Lyanna parallel, and John tends to frame Egret through thoughts as Ned and whoever his mother was, but they really do reflect that Rhaegar and Lyanna, and we hear it as early as A Game of Thrones. In the very beginning, you get chapter 8. We get so many lines from chapter 8, as we know, and you have Lord Eddard Stark is my father. I will not forget him, no matter how many swords they give me. I think that will come back later on when we finally get the Rhaegar and Lyanna reveal, you know, that I will not forget him no matter how many swords they give me. John 8 again, he has that same line that you get this actually in John 7. I noticed this today. You might find this interesting, Eliana, that we actually have that. He heard a small voice whispering, he fathered a bastard. Where was the honor in that? He thinks it in John 7, and I feel like I've never realized this before, too. 
It's really weird. It's like a repeat line. In the in game? Yeah. Did we not discuss that? Yeah. Really weird. He thinks it two chapters in a row. I didn't notice that till like today. Oh, I didn't know it was in two chapters. Yeah. In a row. I yeah. thought it was only in John eight, and then I was rereading John seven, and I was like, well, I'll be darned. But he thinks, and your mother, what of his duty to her? He will not even say her name. We move on to A Storm of Swords, John 5, where we'll eventually read, Many a night he lay with Egret warm beside him, wondering if his lord father had felt this confused about his mother, whoever she had been. Yeah, absolutely. Rhaegar was probably plenty confused about Lyanna in the beginning. We all know my stance on it is a little more middle ground, I think, than some of the fandoms. A lot of the fandom, yes, I agree, Lyanna was very young and Rhaegar was older and a little predatory in this. However, Lyanna also didn't want to be with Robert Baratheon, is the other thing. So I think she was just running to the next best to get her away from that, on top of a bunch of political machinations with Southern ambitions underneath, like, you know, crowning Lyanna as Robert's queen. Just putting it out there. Um, so Storm of Swords John 6, he has a line that we'll hear eventually. He wondered if his father had been torn the same way when he left John's mother to return to Lady Catelyn. He was pledged to Lady Stark, and I am pledged to the Night's Watch. Rhaegar likely had to, you know, return to try to get to Elia, even though he did absolutely not enough jack shit, and he should have left Lyanna's side earlier and stopped porking her, but whatever. And that's just my opinion, though. Don't worry about it. Could have yeah. left just a couple weeks earlier. That's all. I know, I, I kind of have, a, I don't know if I have a really different take on it, and I'm not, certainly not excusing anything I heard it, but the relationship that John has with Egret, and then I also think of, um, it also brings to mind to me Rob and Jane, mm-hmm. and I, I'm i thinking about how the women are the aggressors in the, in the relationship, and it makes me think that, you know, it could have been that way with Rhaegar and Lyanna as well, because Rhaegar really didn't seem like the kind of, I mean, even Ned thinks he's not the kind of frequent brothels. He's not the kind that's, yeah. like, just going after women all the time. And so I, I almost think it's it might have been like a Rob Jane situation where she was the aggressor. It happened. He feels horrible and guilty about it. And to save her honor, they get married. Because I do think that they get married. I don't yeah. think John's a, a bastard for real. So mm-hmm. um, it, I just wonder if it was that kind of a situation for him. I think there's definitely a mashup of a lot of stuff happening. And I've mentioned before, there's the Hall conspiracies is a really good read on Reddit. One of my favorite favorite series so fucking good so good, so good. It, it, and it's something i actually was a little disappointed because i got the chance to like chat with them on some of the work that i've done on some of my hair and holly and ashara stuff and just some different things and they were just like i used to believe what you believe but now i don't at all it's been two years and i'm like wow jaded in the aswath community you know what i mean i get that i totally get it but i'm like oh man heroes heroes are nothing but uh, they, they're still really good essays. And I think there's a good mashup of like that and Southern Ambitions by Stefan Sasse. And I, I think there's just a lot of stuff that we're all on the brink of. Uh, Lady Gwyn's Liana and Rhaegar theories also kind of ring closest to me. Night of the Tree is like Night of the Laughing Tree is obviously a big hint that something happened. And I do think that Rhaegar met her in the woods and there was obvious evidence she was the Night of the Laughing Tree and he had been sent to help go find the Night of the Laughing Tree and kill them for his father, and he was probably protecting her, and I think that's the biggest thing. I think uh, he thought it was very brave, because what Lyanna did was very bold and brave and had courage, 
And I think that's where it set it off, and the two of them on the run, and, you know, a few harp strums in the, the ruins of Old Stones, you know, or Summerhall, either or, or both. A little little progress and some pants off. You know, I'm just saying. Just saying, I think shit happens on the road. You know, as we learn as Egret and John are in each other's skins. And, of course, you get this line in A Dance with Dragons, John 8, to wrap it up, where he thinks, uh, he's talking to Stannis. Do I have your word that you will keep our princess closely, the king had said, and John had promised he would. Val is no princess, though. I told him that half a hundred times. It was a feeble sort of evasion, a sad rag wrapped around his wounded word. His father would never have approved. Interesting comment of keeping the princess safe. If you if you want to look at, you know, Liana in a tower and Liana as Rhaegar's queen in some eventual or Robert's queen, you know, just these ideas of royalty and John thinking, oh, my father would have frowned against that with a, of a princess and blah, blah, blah and all that. I just think it's an interesting play on words thinking of John's father and who raised him hmm. and his daddy is who raised him. I mean, you know that his daddy, maybe not his father. No, no, no. I'm never going to let that Guardians of the <laughs> no, Galaxy. No, it's the only line go. that matters when it comes to John, Rhaegar and Ned. <laughs> it actually is. It somehow perfectly encompasses it, even though it's from a different thing. Entirely. Who needs the wins winner? <laughs> whatever we have guardians of the galaxy volume two same thing <laughs> basically so egret keeps hammering on after this that john stole her as we'll hear it once more as we get into the caves later the two caves and no matter what interpretation you really subscribe to of rhaegar and liana in some iteration in some story rhaegar stole liana whether it's the romantic Bale the Bard story. If you don't think it was stealing, I redirect you to this language used by Egret. She says to John, like, you stole me. And John says, I didn't think I was stealing you. I didn't steal you. And she says, well, you did. Yeah, and I think that irony is really interesting, especially when combined with, yeah, it's Radio Westeros who I think put forth the theory, but a lot of, maybe other people have as well, of Rhaegar being sent to kit kill the knight of the laughing tree thinking it's a man uh they gotta kill this man right but it also then reminds me once more of how john and egret came to be because corin halfhand sent john to kill egret and then he's like "Mm, this is not a man uh I i i feel really weird about this and then also stealing her. And to take it one step further, if you remember when we talked about Sansa Stark, the queen in the north, everyone give her your respect for just a second. Anyways, but if you mm-hmm. recall her, we talked about her for a while ago, and we talked about Snow White and the Huntsman. And the Huntsman is sent to kill Snow White and take her heart and bring it back to the queen mm. to prove that she was dead. In this scenario, Lyanna Stark, who gave birth to Jon Snow, would be the Snow White, and Rhaegar would be the huntsman sent to take her heart and bring it back to show Ares, right? That, oh yes, I killed her father, here you go. So really just interesting story, and of course the fairy tale stuff lends into some Arthurian legends as well with Guinevere, and I don't know, just some ideas, just some thoughts. So are you saying... Two things. One, are you saying that Littlefinger nope. stole Sansa? I want you to stop. Are you also saying that the Huntsman Samuel Tarly no, steals Jon Snow thing. as a white? <laughs> I think that's what you're saying. 
that's the episode. Well, thanks for coming Thank on. Thank you for joining us. Though, us I guess. <laughs> Wait, so I guess the episode's over. So John Snow is like Snow White. Is, that, is so John is going to be a white? Is he going to be like the new Night King? Like, okay. Oh my God, go get out. <laughs> You're yes, fired now. With You're the both husband. fired. I'm firing both of you. <laughs> this is a double fire. The economy is booming <laughs> at Girls Gone Canon. There are two job openings for at Girls Gone Canon. Sorry, Vanessa. You one can't for get a part time intern. Because you were only yeah, on one episode. Damn it. <laughs> so the Magnar then asks for John. And he makes the journey to him through the rock in the cave where the big bosses sit. So Steer and uh, Yarl have split command, and Steer is not terribly happy about that. Uh, Yarl gets treated like a good brother because he's Val's pet, um, and Val is obviously Bella's sister, so he's got that close tie to Mance. And Steer had brought a huge army of Thens, but John knows that Yarl has his worth as well because he's done eight years of ranging and would be able to get them in over the ice. So Steer asks John to tell him everything he knows of the Watch Patrols, and John does. He does embellish a bit <laughs> later on, but he says you know, that there are four men in each patrol. There are two builders on mules, and they check for weak spots in the wall, and there are two rangers. And Steer says the mules are slow, but John comments that they're sure-footed on the ice. Steer says even they know the tale of Ars and Ice Axe, which we get to know then. John recalls it. The man was halfway through digging a tunnel under the wall when rangers from the night fort caught him. They didn't stop his digging, but they sealed the entrance behind him. John thinks, Dolores Ed used to say if you pressed your ear flat to the wall, you could still hear Arson chipping away with his axe. Interesting. Donald Noy says no to them sealing the gates during the battle later this book at Castle Black, beneath Castle Black. And Bowen Marsh tells John to seal them during Adabara, affectionately, my favorite story here, Adabara, and... John says no, like deliberately says we're not going to do that. So knowing what we know about John hearing this story of Arson Isaacs and hearing it again with the Wildlings, then his relationship to the Wildlings, he lets Tormund through, obviously through a tunnel. This changes affects John's opinion, right? He goes from thinking about Arson Isaacs as bad, breaking through a side of the wall, to later on he opens the borders. And really deep down it's John not sealing his heart <laughs> to the wildlings. I mean, you're not wrong. I know. <laughs> Open your heart, John. Also, tunnels. Ooh, tunnels? Tunnels mean other things? Anyways, we're in the cave. Lude, we're not in the cave yet. John is asked how many troops go out when, and he tells them, because he's like, there's no use in lying, and is then asked how many men are stationed at each castle. And he basically does the equivalent of... Adding a few inches. Oh, appropriate. Okay. Oh, um. He just fudges a little. <laughs> yeah, he fudges the numbers. It's like, it's it's average. Seven inch. No. 500 at Castle Bluck. 200 at Shadow Tower. Perhaps 300 at Eastwatch. John added 300 men to the count. If only it were that easy. All men think that. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. Ha <laughs> <Har. laughs> ha. Um, okay. Uh. <laughs> and of course, you're all sort of like, mm, I don't think so. Definitely not. I've seen this before. Especially because, you know, they saw the men that were likely killed at the fist. And they're like, nah, John. But John, of course, tells them. 
I'm no crow and won't be called a liar. John flexed the fingers of his sword hand. He's got to tell. Stir says they'll know the truth of it soon enough, though, and John is allowed to go. John bowed his head stiffly and went. If all the wildlings were like Steer, it would be easier to betray them. The Thens were not like other free folk, though. The Magnar claimed to be the last of the first men and ruled with an iron hand. His little land of Thin was a high mountain valley hidden amongst the northernmost peaks of the Frostfangs, surrounded by cave dwellers, horned footmen, giants, and the cannibal clans of the ice rivers. Egret said the Thens were savage fighters and that their Magnar was a god to them. John could believe that. Unlike Carol and Harma and Rattleshirt, Stir commanded absolute obedience from his men, and that discipline was no doubt part of why Mance had chosen him to go over the wall. I think there's a lot of fen culture and setup here for John when he makes his big political match later on between Alice and Sigourn. I, the Thens think themselves lords more than the free folk tend to, so John feels like he can fool the Magnar more easily than he can fool people like Tormund and Egret. Uh, when John marries Alice and Sigorn later, he pays attention to how the Thens operate, and he sees that they appreciate laws and power and what this could do for them. They're proud of their culture, as John has learned, their tongue, their people, their laws, and their discipline, and they embrace modern technology and warfare a lot more than the Free Folk, and they have more to gain from a partnership with the Seven Kingdoms. It's something interesting. I will side note that I made a wonderful Twitter thread the other day. Like, I put in my all. You know when you're just going in on a Twitter thread, ladies? You guys know when you're just like, this is it. Yep. Going out for this thread. So I made Sansa Stark, the queen in the north, first of her name, long may she reign. Uh, I made her northern council. And I actually put Alice Karstark as her person in charge of diplomacy, her master of laws. I think that would be a perfect connection in the North, especially in kind of marrying the free folk and resettling that new gift like we've talked about Sansa and John eventually doing, or maybe just Sansa doing what Ned had wanted in resettling that gift. Yeah, and regarding all of those similarities that the Fens have, right? It's kind of interesting in the context of this quote, first of all, that John thinks that's why Mance had chosen them to go over the wall. It shows a little of what Corrin was saying about leadership. He knows his men well. He knows who's good for what sort of duty. But also the Thens then kind of seem very much like the Westerosi. But somehow it's, you know, in terms of their culture, you talked about the ways that they could probably easily assimilate. But he also sees the Thens as very cold and impersonable. And that's why John thinks that it would be easier to betray them. So... It's interesting that they're the most like the Westerosi, but because they're different from the other free folk who are very carefree, that makes John feel more unwelcome around them as opposed to the others. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think John definitely has a bit of a rebellious streak. So when he's facing people like Magnar and then Stannis and then maybe even Daenerys later on, who are all um, pretty commanding and... They really demand obedience from those who follow them. I think he's going to have a difficult time working well with them. Um, I mean, obviously hmm. he will when he has to, and he's pretty um, politically savvy, I think. But I don't think he enjoys it. And so, you know, like so, like we talked earlier, if, if his fate really is ending up beyond the wall with the free folk, I think this is good foreshadowing of that because he, I think deep down he wants to be truly free. And I think that reflects in how he thinks about these different people. 
I mean, later on in A Dance with Dragons, he has these thoughts when he's sending his friends away and when he's choosing who to command and when he's, it's actually when he's going to sit at dinner, you know, his friends are like, aren't you going to come sit with us, John? Come sit with us. And he's like, I can't. And he thinks about how even Ned had said, you know, you can love the men that you command, but you cannot be their friends because one day you may have to bring them before you and judge them fairly and justly. And John doesn't enjoy wearing the Lord's face. He doesn't enjoy heavy as the crown uh, if, if and when he is crowned king of the north, which is pretty much obviously likely at this point. Uh, he won't enjoy it. It's not going to be something he wanted. It's not for glory. Wearing a crown doesn't bring him glory. Uh, it's something that it's a very guilty, guilty pleasure that he could have Winterfell. And we get a taste of that in his conversation with Stannis later in the story and in A Dance with Dragons. But it's it's not something he can bear. Be careful what you wish for yeah. kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting that you pointed out that he has that rebellious streak because on the flip side, not in dance, all the way going back to book one, we do see John exhibiting very much of that at the Night's Watch. He has a lot of issues with authority, and that's why it's so convincing when John tells that one thing to Mance of, did you see where they sat the bastard? Because... As you're saying, if like maybe the free folk is where he ends up, there's less of that authority figure. John doesn't get along very well with authority figures. He learns to, but yeah, he he does, he never really enjoys it. I don't think. No, he he doesn't enjoy politics at all. I mean, that's how Ned is too. You see that a lot in Ned, but John doesn't enjoy it. He does his duty because he has to, and. That's the bigger part of this, that, you know, he he wants to be real with these people. It's harder to betray Tormund and Egret because he craves that friendship he never was allowed to have. He was always held so far away. You don't get to be their sibling, Jon Snow. You're the bastard. You don't get to sit at the table. You can be in the room and you can watch them eat, but you don't get to sit there at the high table. You're a bastard. You can't fight princes. But in the end, when it turns out he's not a bastard and, you know, the fate of the world is on his shoulders he'll learn that he doesn't really belong there either. He's the lone wolf. Yeah, and that's not really, I mean, all he ever has really wanted to do was belong. And so yep. maybe that's what he'll get in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe part of him shrugging, or trying to shrug, that kingship is part of that rebellious streak of John's. John then heads back to where Egret had been. He finds her belongings, but not her. So then Grig the Goat which is a great name, tells him that she took a torch and ran off that away. He follows along the cavern. He goes through stalactites and hears her laughing, booming off the walls, and he hears the sound of trickling water and comes to a waterfall where there is only egret and a torch. She also had heard the sound of water. She wanted to see how deep the caverns went. When John thinks it's a dead end, she explains how these caverns traverse through all the hills and under the wall. There are theories out there that these tunnels go through all of Westeros, maybe the entire T of Planetos and like under the Red Keep. This is a thing that I believe. A lot of people theorize that there's like weirwood roots as well that travel through all of yeah. Westeros. And I think that's cool. I don't know if there is. I don't know if we'll find out, but I'll subscribe to it. Why not? The worldwide weirnet. Exactly. I mean, hey, I'm just putting it out there. Bran might not have been the Night King, but they got the theory half right. Just saying, this could be real, too. (laughs) Oh, just king. Oh, I see. Got it. I see you now. They put the king and Night King. Not the night part, but maybe it'll happen at night. 
I mean, crazier things have happened. I'm just saying, Westeros can be a weirwood route. Yes, he doesn't get to be a knight. Also, a knight while I'm making puns, King. you know. Yep. Um, I hate you. <laughs> so Egret shares another story of a king of the night beyond the wall. Uh, just kidding, just a king beyond the wall, and their encounter with the Starks, which were Gendel and Gorn, who we've talked about a bit before in John one and two. Both kings of the free folk who made it past the wall only to face the wolves of Winterfell. Gorn slew the king in the north, but in turn was slain by his son. And the sound of swords woke the crows in their castles, and they rode out in all black to take the free folk in the rear. <laughs> oh, George. Oh, worth it. So, worth it. John believes Gendel died, but Egret explains Gendel and his people escaped back into the tunnels, but then they got lost. She asks if John can hear them still. Ooh. Ooh, spooky. spooky. <laughs> so here's an idea that I was thinking of because we were seeing a lot of how these songs and legends and stories like manifest and other characters or whatever through a song of ice and fire. We talked about a couple different ways Throughout actually all of these John chapters in the Storm of Swords, very musical book, all right. But the story of Gendel and Gorn, I'm kind of wondering if it parallels Bran and Rob a little, since you were talking about these kings. Like, Rob dies heading south, as did Gorn, and Bran secretly escapes, as did Gendel, and the realm thinks that Bran is dead, just as they thought Gendel was dead. But the other king... Because apparently this is the case, right? Bran slash Gendel is actually waiting beneath the tunnels. Ah, oh, Gorn dies heading south. Gendel is uh, in the tunnels, which does also remind me of Bale the Bard and a few of that too, with the whole waiting beneath the tunnels. Yeah. All these songs, all these stories that we said, but there was that line in John 3 of Chet mocking John, calling him the bastard of Winterfell and brother to kings. And Gilly later going, is it true, my lord? Are you brother to a king? So just all this foreshadowing of kings is really nice behind it as well. Very interesting. And we get this really spooky line afterwards. There's not to eat in the dark, but flesh. Yeah, there's actually been a lot of imagery and language throughout this chapter. As you guys have been reading that I've been noticing that kind of tie consumption and sex like that sexual appetite but kind of starts making it almost weird and literal and uncanny because it feels like a reference to cannibalism in Brand's story especially because that's the direction that dance and the other books seem to be going or is it just foreshadowing whole... of him doing the lord's kiss later <laughs> oh that's true eating that's true eating out <laughs> sorry guys <laughs> Vanessa, God, put it in your pants. <laughs> Speaking of sex, so. <laughs> Egret bites John's neck. He nuzzles her back. He tells her she reminds him of old Nan. Pause. <laughs> telling Bran a story. Unpause. And they banter about her being older than he is. Like, are you guys age playing this? Is this, <laughs> is this sex? Is this, is this, is this foreplay? Is this foreplay? So. She's all, I'm wiser, and you know nothing. And then she shrugs off her vest, which is made of rabbits, which is symbolism of them having sex, like rabbits. And she disrobes, and he's like, what you doing? And she's like, getting naked, lol you. And he's like, okay. And he gets naked, too. Yeah, this this chapter is just great with all of the sexual imagery and symbolism. Like, 
you know, the deep, dark caves and clefts in the rock and Mance planned his thrust well. And then talking about the cave being a dark hole under an outthrust of wet zone. It's like, come on, Oh my God. You know, more obvious, why don't you? (laughs) I can't believe it. There's a... There was no horns, though. Like, there were only wide pink nipples with no horns at the tips. Usually there's horns. And I felt like in this plot, it would behoove him to talk about horned things. So I'm disappointed. I'd say it's a five out of ten. Spiky spiky nipples? Like in in Austin? Oh. I don't know. I was like, is this like, I don't know. What what was it? Yeah, Austin Powers where they have, like, the nipple guns? (laughs) I think about them all the time. They're so powerful. Am I wrong? No. Hey, no. if you can make these things shoot, I, I, I mean, yeah. I would. That's true. For sure. Yeah, so as they think about nipples and nipple guns, Egret tells John uh, that he knows nothing once more. I know I want you, he heard himself say, all his vows and all his honor forgotten. She stood before him naked as her name day, and he was as hard as the rock around them. He had been in her half a hundred times by now, but always beneath the firs with others all around them. He had never seen how beautiful she was. Her legs were skinny but well-muscled, the hair at the juncture of her thighs a brighter red than that on her head. Does that make it even luckier? So he goes on, he's giving her like this 10 things I love about you speech. He's like, I love the way this is and this, this, this and blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, I'm going to kiss you on your vagina, which in modern day, some people might call third base. And Egret's like, is this what lords do? Kiss their ladies down there? Like, leg flip. Fuck, I wish. Great shit. Girl, you got to pay extra for that. Um, yeah, but John was like, no, I just want you to be really pleasured. Which is nice. And then the truth finally comes out. They're like chatting and she's like, wait, was this your first time? And he's like, no. And she's like, and he's like, yeah, I'm a man of the Night's Watch, dude. He's like, oh, a big fat virginity McVirgin pants. And she starts like make fun of him like really hard. And I'm like, Egret, it's not nice. He was sheltered, Egret. Uh, do you love the 10 things I love? I hate about you. So That's literally what it is, right? Like, it was just like, yeah. I love the way your lips do this, and your hair does this, and your face does this when you say this. That's it. That was a speech. I read the book. Yes. Oh, I was I was thinking about the movie. I do love that part in that it's movie. It's a great movie. Same thing. I know. R.I.P. Heath Ledger. I do rewatch so that movie frequently. Mm-hmm. I know. <sighs> I was a man of the night's watch. Was, he heard himself say. What was he now? He did not want to look at that. <coughs> it gets raspy and in so, there, just so you know. I, it hurts me to oh, do it for you, but I do it for I'm, you. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. I love the way you do the John's voice for me. <laughs> I love the way. Uh, John then changes the topic. He's like, so I don't want to think about that. Let's just push that down in my feelings compartmentalizing. He goes, so, what about you, Egret? You're not a virgin, right? And he's just like, I really hope it was Longspear who banged you because, I mean, that's his name, and also that'd be a major bummer because I kind of really like that, dude. I'm not supposed to ask that, John. Come on. Right? It's it's uncouth. (laughs) It's unkind, you know? I love her rebuttal, though. It, It makes me think of Arya, and actually, eventually, Danny. Because Egret punches him, and she's like, 
that's vile. Would you bed your sister? And he's like, Longspear's not your brother. And she gives him this little speech. He's of my village. You know nothing, Jon Snow. A true man steals a woman from afar to strengthen the clan. Women who bed brothers or fathers or clan kin offend the gods and are cursed with weak and sickly children. Even monsters. Gasp. Gasp. Uh, hashtag monster. Hashtag. I worry about that <laughs> child. I said that today to Emmett. I was thinking of you. Uh, I wonder... <laughs> Did you worry about I that do. child? Anyways, so I wonder if John's going to see Egret's face swim in his head when he knows finally about him and Danny's relationship, like about their familial ties. You know, I wonder if he's going to think about this because it's just such an interesting little passage and we know they're going to probably pork at some point, you know. I'm just so glad he didn't go down the John Arya route. Uh, yuck. Anyway. <laughs> it's offensive. It's honestly offensive. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if he, if that does come into his head with Daenerys, then anyone who's a Jonsa shipper should think about that for them, too. Because, I mean, it's not a lot yeah. better. Sorry. Incest is very much that bad and taboo amongst the First Men. It's, of course, against a religious taboo for those who follow the faith of the seven, but it very much is ingrained culturally amongst those who are of the first men. And that's why it kind of leads to this practice of stealing amongst the free folk, as as Egret says, right? You steal a woman from afar, and that's to strengthen the clan, because in doing so, it kind of helps ascertain that it's a different family and therefore not incest. Yeah, and I really like the line about even monsters. It um, kind of brings to mind... I mean, you think about the the Targaryen babies that are born to form like wings and scales that are they're um, considered to be monstrous, but also Craster's sons that he gives to the others. And if it turns out to be like in the show where they take the babies and they turn them into others or whites or whatever they do with them, um, could that be talking about those babies being monsters in that way as well? I think it has to be. I think it's like. Mm-hmm. known that and it can't just be craster obviously but it has to be huge free folklore of you know past wildlings that have survived via doing this and i do think that was a very canon thing the show got to pull out and reveal before george did i think it's i do think it's hinted enough that that's probably what's happening i guess so i'll give them that one that was a cool one to see live you know yeah i do think it's something that was canon as you said, the show got to before that, but as you're talking about the even monsters line and the Targaryen babies, it's interesting because around this point in the books, John is wondering, right, who he is, if he's a man of the Night's Watch, etc. A little later in Danny's storyline, but it is kind of on the horizon. She herself is wondering if she's a monster. So that's something that, you know, both both these kids, teenagers, having their identity crisis. <laughs> but way more serious than any identity crisis I guess I had as a kid, whatever. <laughs> a little bit. Only There's a bit. like ice zombies. Yeah, I was like in charge of what? Art club? <laughs> Not entire like nations or people's lives? Whatevs. It was a people, though. It's still a people. Still a people. <laughs> I guess. Yes. Still a pilgrimage Five. of paintbrushes. We, did, we didn't uh, have dragons or magical ice zombies to worry about either, so. That's true. Look, the weight of the world was on our shoulders then. (laughs) It really feels that way when you're a teenager. All right, gonna throw that out there. Now I'm just like, what's responsibility? Fuck it. So John tries to object, and he's like, what about Craster? He's a monster. And Egret's like, 
He's more your kind than ours. He was born a crow. She tells him a real man steals his woman the way you did. And John's like, I did not steal you, dude. She's like, yeah, you killed Orel. You didn't murder me. Then I told you the story of Bale the Bard, and you didn't pluck me then, but now you're inside me, so it's safe to say, think you stole me, buddy. I just love that Egret thinks that she was dropping major hints during this time, and I'm like, I, I don't know, I was there. These were not obvious hints, being like, yeah, you killed these guys, or being like, yeah, let me tell you a cool story. None of these were very obvious hints. On a more, like, serious note, though, I mean, I, I think it's funny that she keeps talking about this whole, like, stealing concept, because the Free Folk women are very forward and aggressive, but it's almost like they their culture isn't that forward-thinking because they have to come up with this whole stealing story for why they get to have sex with someone. It's like, well, it's still the man's fault. Like, I have to do it because he stole me. It's like they can't take ownership of their sexuality. It's, you know, it's almost like they have to play it off. Like, it's they're only doing it because a man is making them, which is strange to me. Yeah, it's it's still not free. And you, you glean some of that when she's telling John, like, yeah, you'll be free and then we'll kill you if you leave. Like, it's... It's not that much different, and hopefully a uh, a post whatever world they go to in the end, if he's at the wall living in exile past the wall, it'll be a little freer, maybe? Because this isn't freedom. And I mean, they won't really have a- he'll be the leader if so, or he'll be a leader of sorts or someone they look to for some guidance, so hopefully it won't be. Yeah, and it makes me think of Tywin, which is like, I hate to think of Tywin, about how no man mm. is truly free. So the only children and fools think otherwise. Hmm. So, kind of sad. Hmm. It's part of that social contract that they sign, you know, and even if they don't think that there is a social contract with the free folk, they're signing it in their blood every day. Yeah. And it's something that's running throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Like, that idea of freedom, not just, like, societally, even though, as Mighty Isabel says, the patriarchy hurts everyone, and that's what A Song of Ice and Fire is about at a macro level. But also... If they can escape, right, what they think is their destiny in terms of what their family has laid out before them, living up to all these things, how free can you be when you're shackled by all of these memories and legacies? Anyway, so John's like, okay, sure, well, the torch is almost out, so we should go, but they decide to just, like, have more sex instead and don't go. I mean, typical yep. teenagers. Good for them. You know, good for them. By the time the torch burned out, Jon Snow no longer cared. His guilt came back afterward, but weaker than before. If this is so wrong, he wondered, why did the gods make it feel so good? Oh so cheesy. I love it. It's like, if it's so wrong, I don't want to be right. Oh, also, Miss Opportunity for Jon Snow longer cared. Anyways... It's it's kind of really fun that all of this is happening in the cave, because here in the cave, of course, there's a double entendre, as Vanessa was saying earlier, of, you know, vaginas. But John can be more honest with himself in the cave, but he's also still wrestling with his duty. Like, he blurts out while he's here that he wants Egret, says, I was a man of the Night's Watch, and he gives into his desires, which is really apt, because, like, as young... J.U.N.G. thinks of the cave as a place where one encounters their unconscious. I mean, think Luke Skywalker in the cave and Dagobah and 
how he confronts his own fear of like, oh god, it's me, Invader's Mask, which, uh, side note, I'm pretty much convinced is the inspiration <laughs> for that moment in Danny's Fever Dream in Game of Thrones, but I digress. Not actually making that one I'm actually serious about. Descending into the cave, though, which is like hidden from the world, John has to confront his truth. And not only is it a place where he's encountering his unconscious, it's it's a place of a lot of conflicting ideas because the cave comes to be so many different things, like how Plato thinks of the cave as this confusion of the real and the false. And that's very much what's happening to John here. Yeah, the cave very much so reminds me of the line from Eamon, for love is the bane of honor, the death of duty. That did not sound right to John, yet he said nothing. When you're in the cave, that's your death of duty, that's you embracing the love. And when John leaves the cave, it's him taking back and saying his honor and duty. Leaving the wildlings is leaving the cave and going back to his honor and duty. And those are just those huge themes that circulate through all of John's arc, especially in these choices he's making in A Storm of Swords. And I love the kind of symbolism of the cave and, and being with Egret. It's like it's escapism for him. Like he gets to forget for a while mm-hmm. about all, you know, like like the weight of his, the world is on his shoulders. Like he gets to leave that all behind. He gets to really be who he wants to be in that moment. And I think we all can relate to that. I mean, we all have things that we do to escape from the realities of life. You know, it's hard. We have responsibilities and (laughs) things that we have to take care of. And sometimes you just want to get away from it all and not have to worry about it. And I think this is really his chance to do that. And it's, it's very difficult to, to leave that and go back to the real world. Um, And it, it makes me think of the line from that show that, we talk about sometimes <laughs> Westworld. Yeah, it's a great show. You know, watch it, watch it. I'll be talking a lot about that uh, within the next few months. Anyway, um, <laughs> but no, when Bran is with the Three Eyed Raven and he's talking about it's beautiful under the sea, but if you stay too long, you might drown. And that mm-hmm. really, that's mm. what I think about when um, I'm reading about John being with a grit in his cave. It's like it's beautiful and he wants to stay, but if he does, then he really is killing a part of himself and i think ultimately he realizes that and that's why he decides to leave her and i think that's a really good point that you were saying about how that's when he gets to kind of finally be his true self because not only is it about the cave right they're both naked they take off all of their clothes and all the parts that they're playing and he's just as you said being his true self for just a bit i just had a question is that line from bran was that originally from, or or that, did you say the three-eyed, what is yeah. it, Raven it's in the show? Raven, like, says yeah. it or he tells it to Bran. When he's having his visions, like his flashbacks, he basically tells him, like, you. he pulls him out because he's like, you can't stay here too long. Cause it's, is it, it's season six, episode two, home. Yes. It's when he goes episode, back to Winterfell and sees <laughs> uh, young Ned and young Benjamin, young Leanna. It's very sweet. Yep. Yeah. I'm fine. Is that a patch face like reference or anything like that? Ah, because the, the language regarding staying under the sea and drowning. As Chloe says, the show's not that deep. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it, it ain't yeah, that that's deep. True. Girls. I, I want You're to. Right. I want to believe. I do. So you know what? For now, <sighs> let's just be positive and optimistic and say it sounds like they were taking from it because they know it exists because of the Shireen song and they played it during this last season. Uh, as underscore during the little scarred face girl that was in the crypt that had absolutely no payoff to Davos. Or oh my Gilly. god. Anyways, so 
John and Egret splash around and wrestle in the dark. Vanessa, Vanessa's face was good there. I can't keep a straight face. Right. Vanessa was just like, yep. I mean, there uh, were so yep, many yep. things that didn't have a payoff. I, mean, I digress. Anyway. Yep. yep. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure we all remembered that that was, there was no reason. It was just there. And it was a nice overture, though, and I like that. The show does not always pay its debts. <laughs> it is not a Lannister, but you'd think it would be because those son of a guns. Uh, they wrestled and splashed in the dark, and then she was in his arms again, and it turned out they were not finished at all. Jon Snow, she told him when he'd spent his seat inside her. Don't move now, sweet. I like the feel of you in there. I do. Let's not go back to Stir and Jarl. Let's go down inside and join up with Gendel's children. I don't ever want to leave this cave, Jon Snow. Not ever. She never wanted to leave. Never wanted to leave. Sorry. <laughs> very Jenny <laughs> Big song. Sad. Very. Oh my god. It is. Because she's gonna be dead in a little bit. It's very sad. And I, I think that's a great connection though, and that is something that we were totally gifted with in season eight, which is Jenny's song. That was when that happened. I had my hand clasped over my mouth. I was like tears in my eyes. Yeah. Everybody was checking on me too. All my friends were messaging me like, "You okay? You good, buddy? You all right?" Because I don't think you're all right right now. And I'm like, "Nope, sure not all right, not all right." Uh, it was perfect. The lyrics were really good. They they killed it. Both versions were great. I actually like Podrick's a little more than uh Florence Welch's. Same. Okay, cool. Not okay. I I'm not alone. I just think it's haunting and beautiful, and maybe it's because of watching the montage, but. That's a song that Rhaegar sings that Lyanna cries to and Benjen, who, believe it or not, Benjen is the very first person to talk about honor and duty in the whole entire A Song of Ice and Fire series. Isn't that interesting? He's the first person to literally mention them together, that he talks about how the Night's Watch is a sworn brotherhood. We have no families. None of us will ever father sons. Our wife is duty. Our mistress is honor. Uh, Benjen New, which is the take that we have on this podcast, Benjen, capital B, New, capital K, uh, read it and weep, losers, he did. I mean, it's the official take. He knew. Benjen knew. There's no question. It's it's funny that Ygritte's line makes me think of Jenny's song, because uh, what John, what happens with John is almost an inverse of what happens with Jenny and Duncan, because he gives up his duty for his love for her. And John does the opposite. He gives up his love for Egret to do his duty. And they both huh. end tragically, which is really sad. Yeah. And, I mean, in the end, all of this love for loss, you have a lot of prophecy regarding some of these losses. And if some of these echoes continue on into the endgame, we'll see it with Danny and John. And you get all these other lines about honor and duty throughout the story, like in A Game of Thrones, John 6, you get a similar recap of what Benjen said. A man of the Night's Watch lives his life for the realm, not for a king, nor a lord, nor the honor of his house or that house, neither for gold, nor glory, nor a woman's love, but for the realm and all the people in it. A man of the Night's Watch takes no wife and fathers no sons. Our wife is duty, our mistress is honor, and you are the only sons we shall ever know. So that's during their vows in front of the godswood. Egret is really this step in John's journey that Aemon tells us about in John 8. It's the very first step. It's his first, you know, the first egg you gotta break in that omelet. Oh. Sorry, it was all I had there. Are we talking about eggs? Yep, breaking eggs. 
eggs. They knew they must have no divided loyalties to weaken their resolve, so they vowed they would have no wives nor children. While Egret is this step off the path for John, off of these black stones, so to speak, uh, and the way I think in the end it comes back to John not having divided loyalties, whether it Targaryen or Stark, it won't weaken his resolve. He takes no wife, no children. He kept his vows in the end of the story, no matter what, right? Something that bothers me a little bit with all of the discussion about love versus duty, it's, to me, and maybe it's the romantic in me, I don't know, but I feel like if you don't love something, then it's kind of difficult to do your duty toward it. Like, if your duty is to protect the realm and you don't give two shits about who the realm or who's in it, then how can you really do your best to protect it? And (laughs) although it's not like the most masterpiece of cinema, I think of Braveheart where they talk about (laughs) how um, a free man defending his home is more powerful than a conscripted army because it's your home. You love Mm. your home. You love your family. And so you're even stronger when you do your duty to protect that home and that family. And so I just find it interesting that we have so much of a dichotomy between love and duty in these books when I think that it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. I absolutely agree. And I think that's something that I've taken umbrage with, especially in the way that Maester Eamon phrases it of like love and honor being opposite from one another. Because, you know, as we said before, like, I think that the choice that Ned made, right, which was born out of love in choosing to protect John, in choosing to keep Leon a secret, I think that there's an honor in that. I think there's absolutely an honor in him choosing to protect Sansa and Arya because he thinks Arya's there but she's not, as opposed to it being dishonorable. But I guess maybe it's like that difference of personal honor versus societal honor. But I do think that there's an honor in that. And like you said, like there's a duty involved in love as well. And, and that duty ought to is stronger, as you said, when love is involved in it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's it, it's a rough place, too, because John is spending all this time being defined by other people as the bastard of Winterfell, the Lord Snow, you know, a crow. He has all these names thrown at him, and he's actually trying to find himself amidst it. So this foray into Egret, dipping himself into, into Egret. In, okay, all right. Yep. Let me have this one, Eliana. Yep. Had a very long day. I'm happy. Uh, His foray into Egret is kind of just that. He's trying to discover himself, but he has that voice whispering in the back of his head the whole time. You know, he was. You were wrong to love her. You were wrong to leave her. That comes up later. That's it. That's his little beating heart in his head telling him what to do or what's right and what's wrong. And yeah, it's just sad because John never really gets a chance. I feel like, to find himself for himself. And I think part of that difficulty is, now that I think about it deeply, maybe there are conflicting loves in there, because as we saw in, I think, the previous chapter, or the one before that, as John wonders who he is now, part of how he thinks of his duty to the realm and the need to protect it is tied to, there is a love, but it's the love that he holds for the Starks that he holds for his brothers. He's like, I would do anything to protect them if it came to it or something like that. Um, I, I don't remember the exact line, but we had discussed it 
what we're seeing is this conflict between the romantic and the familial love, and that becomes this weird, uncanny place, especially later in John's story, when the romantic and familial love is the same because you're banging your aunt. But those chapters are going to be interesting. Whenever we get them. Do you think we're going to learn about Danny's nipples at length? Literally? <laughs> we already have, haven't we? Like, in her chapters. But at length. Uh, Vanessa yeah, gets I get it. it. I get it. Yeah. Oh, at length, because horns? <laughs> yeah, because George nipple describes p- women's nipples as, like, giant fucking eraser heads. <laughs> Only some of them. Yeah, he never talks about them as being innies, you know? Sometimes that happens when it's cold. In general, sometimes it happens, you know? Like, inverts. To- I'm just saying. Yeah. Come on, George. Sometimes I get irritated. That's why I think it's really weird. Talk like... about the chafing. Talk about the chafing. <laughs> also, like, talk about how John's loins are probably so greasy from, like, sweat and, like, the furs, yeah. like, uh, and they've just been banging in the furs before the, the, the cave bath? Man. Gross. Yeah. Just the layers of grime in there. Oh, and, and I forgot to mention, so... I really think he grit reciprocated at the end of the chapter. Because she talks about do it again with your mouth, the Lord's kiss, and I could see if you liked it any. Does that mean that she she does it to him? Which, eh, anyway. <laughs> That's a tale for another cave, oh, apparently. Well, gross. It, it's a good thing that, well, it's kind of alright because they're at this cave with the pool. Right, right, right. Yeah. So Hopefully I think they, they showered, off. and by showered yeah. I mean bathed. It's just hygiene is really beforehand. important, you guys. For sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, but maybe they're into that. They're role-playing as old Nan, and... Uh, <laughs> that didn't make it better. <laughs> nope, it's for mistakes, Eliana. Are you sure? It worse. <laughs> so, um, hygiene, thank you for coming to our public service announcement, guys. Please wear deodorant. Yes. And wash yourself. It's canon. Yes. Especially if you're going in some Clean caves yourself. spelunking. Wow. <laughs> Don't go spelunking in her cave without washing yourself. That's my PSA. Practice safe sex. They should have stayed in that cave. They really should have. Agreed. In that cave. Yep. I'm really sad because... It's like the story doesn't change every time I read it. I know what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I loved I loved Egret. Like when I saw her on the screen, when I read her in the books, yes. and this was actually the first death that hit me super hard. Like I mean, obviously like Ned's shocked me. I saw it on screen first, right? Before I I read it in the books and other things I guess happened, but this is the one that like hit me the hardest. Yep, same. Egret was the one that that was my favorite character. That was what got me into Game of Thrones. When I watched it for the first time, I got to season two and I put down the show at the end of season two and said, I'm getting the books. I read the books up to like season three. I'm at season three. I finished a storm of swords before season three came out and I was just devastated. I was like, what are you talking? What are you saying? What? No, no, no. Yeah, She's really such a mad. great character. I, I really do love her and, um, I've always thought it'd be fun to cosplay her, but it always ends up I'm somewhere hot and I don't want to go around in fur. So. <laughs> it was my first Game of Thrones cosplay was her in Michigan. Ah. So in Michigan uh, at the time, so you can do that it's there. Little, it's like a even in yeah. Halloween, it's like seventy five degrees here. So yeah, doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I getcha. I getcha. Yeah, it was uh, in um, November, so it was actually like perfect for outdoors. It was wonderful, but 
That was 2013, my first uh, Game of Thrones costume I ever did. I was so excited. I was like, Egret's my favorite character. And she died. So. That's kind of par for the course for these books. Yep. Yep. I'll never trust again. You could cosplay her in the cave. But. (laughs) I just, I can never trust. Yeah, that's true. Yep. We'll always have the memories, though. (sighs) Maybe. Maybe, you know, along the way, the the caves we made among the- Anyways. <laughs> what the hell? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just sad. Really sad. Yesterday, I got really in my feels. I was listening to my Egret playlist on the way home, and uh, mm-hmm. I realized there's a cover on there of woman's work, and it's like this acoustic male cover, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, God, this is about Egret. How did they know? Yeah, I know that you have a different pairing for this song, but for me, I think of Samson by by Regina Spector. That's a song that I associate with Egret and John. I respect it. All right. <laughs> That's all I'll say about it. I respect your pairing. It told me that my hair is red. Something something about Wonder Bread. Took me back to his bed. Gave me a slice of Wonder Bread. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> John singing, singing, You Were My Sweetest Downfall. I downfall. do love Regina Spector, and it is a good, tragic Song of Ice and Fire song. Honestly, it should be on every playlist. Every single one. That's true. And he loved her first. Uh, the, and as you know, my my uh, ultimate John and Egret track is Say Something. Oh, yeah, yep. it is. For you. Anywhere yep. I would have followed you. Oh, God. If, yeah. Have you seen the video for that song? Yep. Because I ball my eyes out every time I watch it. It's Every awful. time. I actually haven't. Oh, I haven't seen so it yet. It's very sad. It's very sad. Oh, okay. You gotta watch it tonight. Well, thanks for telling me, everyone. Okay. I'll tell you all, and I'll, like, tell you all. Guys, I'm crying now. Oh, my God. Okay. Well. <laughs> well. I guess that wraps us up on John 3, ladies. What do you think? I'm just sad now. Yeah. I'm gonna go drown my feelings in some wine. Yep. They should have stayed in that cave. Holy shit. They should have. have. (sighs) Vanessa, you have been a delight to have on tonight. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you guys for having me on. It was such a pleasure, and um, I've been looking forward to it all week, and so just really exciting to be on here. Awesome. Hey, tell everyone again where they can find you, best places to look, anything you want to shout out. Sure. Well, you can always catch me at watchersonthewall.com. I'll be covering news about the prequel that's coming out. Um, We'll be... Um, delving into news about that prequel on our podcast, The Night's Cast, and we'll also be going into some book stuff, too, um, over the next few months, so definitely check us out over there. And you can also just follow me on Twitter at Artist. We do have Patreon now uh, for my art. It's uh, VK Cole Art on Patreon. Feel free to check me out over there. I've got some really fun benefits for my patrons, and I'll be adding more in the future. Yeah, you just posted, uh, well, I saw it a couple days early, which is a perk if you sign it to be one of Vanessa's patrons. Mm. Uh, I highly recommend it, but I got to get my eyes on first a wonderful Queen of the North portrait, uh, beautifully done, of Queen Sansa, the first of her name. So I thought check she it out. like that one, yeah. It's, um, it's, yeah, I felt like there was some pandering <laughs> yeah, going on. Attack, I wasn't going to say anything about it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's my pen tweet. So if you want to go over to Twitter, it's, it's right there at the top. And um, I am particularly proud of that one. Yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. And also, are you doing a giveaway for that? Uh, or the print on the Night's Cast? The Night's Cast tends to do some giveaways of Vanessa's art as well. We just did a calendar giveaway but i'm sure we'll be doing more and that might be one of them at some point 
Yeah, and I know you're selling a bunch of your really nice uh, pieces of art from the past couple of years. Over at your Twitter, you were tweeting about it. I believe you wanted it to go for at least $100. Hit you a DM at your Twitter account, but they are beautiful. There are like a bajillion pieces in this lot of just gorgeous <laughs> art. And my favorite one is the Sansa and Arya in the Crypts piece. That's yes. my favorite one. So. I you like that one a lot too. Yeah, I am. Um... I've been hoarding all of these original drawings, and I mm. would much prefer someone put them on display somewhere, and I'm running out of room. So, <laughs> find me on Twitter. Yes, buy them. We will link your Twitter below, so no worries. Make sure to check out the description, you guys. Check Vanessa out on the internet. As always, if you want to subscribe to us on social media, you can find us at Twitter. It's at GirlsGoneCanon, C-A-N-O-N. You could also send us a message there or even an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com if you want to chat about the episode. And of course, be sure to subscribe to us if you want to keep up with whenever we have some new episodes coming out, which we do usually <laughs> every week. You can find us on Google Play, on iTunes, on Podbean, where you can also leave us comments, apparently. Same with iTunes, I guess. And Acast and Stitcher and Spotify. And if you got a couple bucks burning in the bottom of your pocket, don't worry about it and spend it at Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We'd rather give you a couple perks rather than you just throwing all that money out the window that you have. That's what I do all the time, just throw piles <laughs> just, of gold. Just, just make it rain Make it constantly. rain. Well, make it rain on us. No, I'm not condoning that. Uh, $5 and up, we'll get a pay. <laughs> $5 and up, we'll get a Patreon special episode every single month. Different themes this month coming up in the mid-end of the month. You will get on Patreon a Northern Independence episode. I am very excited about that for no reasons, obviously. So check it out, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Yep. You gotta you gotta play us out. Really? You can't just be like... Weirded up. We did it. Wa- we did it once, and it was weird. I mean, that we can weird. do it. No, it's we fine. can do it if you want. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet at Arbor or LiesandArborGold.com. And I have been the other of your hosts, Eliana, somewhere on the internet. Have you though? Thanks, guys. <laughs>